Welcome to the New Books Network. Children have the right to be raised by both their mother and father. That used to be a non-controversial idea, but no longer. In their eye-opening 2021 book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement, Katie Faust and Stacey Manning examine how children have been damaged by such developments as no-fault divorce, marriage equality, and the largely unregulated fields of surrogacy and in vitro fertilization. They argue that in the quest for the satisfaction of the desire of adults, the us of the title, children, the them of the title, have been treated as afterthoughts and made into tiny cheerleaders for lifestyles that have deprived the child of either a mother or father by design. The authors quote extensively from a broad range of now adult children of same-sex couples, surrogacy, and children of donors of sperms or eggs, which are not usually donated but bought and paid for. These personal testimonies are heartbreaking and expose the cost to the children of these arrangements and technologies. One example from a woman conceived via egg donation. It bothers me that I cost money, that the one woman I most want in this life is a stranger, yet 50% of me. Sometimes I wish I weren't born. I didn't ask for this, and I never would have consented to it. The child of a male same-sex couple says, My five-year-old brain could not understand why I didn't have the mom that I suddenly desperately wanted. I felt the loss. I felt the hole. As I grew, I tried to fill that hole with aunts, my dad's lesbian friends, and teachers. I remember asking my first grade teacher if I could call her mom. I asked a question of any woman who showed me any amount of love and affection. It was instinctive. I craved a mother's love even though I was well-loved by my two gay dads. This book is an invaluable, gripping record in their own words of the trauma inflicted on children of this brave new world. There are moving documents that show the dark side of social and scientific changes that are often lauded as utterly desirable and utterly unproblematic. Faust and Manning detailed the repercussions of three categories of intentional parental loss, children who experience divorce and abandonment, children with LGBT parents, and children born of surrogacy and via sperm and, and or egg donation. They point out, for example, the starting, startling contrast between adoption, heavily regulated, and surrogacy, basically, shockingly, unregulated. This is an expose of historic importance. It should be read by anyone interested in the fields of bioethics, sociology, psychology, child development, law, public policy, gender studies, and anyone concerned about the fate of children born of reproductive technologies or raised intentionally without a mother or father. The ramifications of these vast and sudden changes have not been addressed sufficiently or candidly outside of conservative scholarly circles. A crucial readership for this book is that of would-be parents considering having children outside of a traditional marriage or producing children via sperm or egg donation. Read what the children of such a range and save their lifelong pain and feelings of loss before you rush into a parenthood that cannot take place without intentional biological parent deprivation. And if you are the child of one of these situations, the, the book will show you that you are not alone. Finally, if you have always felt out of place in your family and nagged by a vague feeling of something being not quite right, one of the shocking revelations of the book is a phenomenon of increasing numbers of children of people who discover as adults that they were conceived by artificial means, and that at least one of their social parents is not their biological one. Thus, you may have siblings, perhaps even dozens, that you don't even know exist. We'll talk today with Katie Faust, the founder and director of Them Before Us and the co-author of this important book about the rights of children. Give a listen. Thank you for joining us today, Katie. Thanks, Hope. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm very delighted because this is a really important, important book. I want to say that this book packs an emotional wallop. 
You've done not a, you've done a service not only to the children for whom you provide a platform to discuss the need for better protection of children when it comes to family structure, but you really opened my eyes, and I mean that. I just had no idea that this was what this that's that's all was happening. You, you talk about the devastating impact on children of non traditional family structures and what you call in the book intentionally creating motherless and or fatherless children. I simply, as I say, I had no idea that so many people come into the world at this point via what you call big fertility. And we'll talk about big fertility. And again, how shockingly unregulated that industry is. And it did not occur to me that we were simply going along. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. No, you keep talking. If, the, if there's more questions, <laughs> let me just say, you're not the only one. I think a lot of people have no idea how completely adult-centric all of these conversations are and how the rights and needs of children are very often disregarded. And that's probably the biggest feedback that I get from people who interact with our nonprofit or read the book is they say, I will never be able to unsee this. I will, uh, now I will always look at these through the lens of, wait a second, what about the kid? Absolutely. I just, it's, it, 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 I was just amazed and appalled by, by learning all this. And for example, and I do say that you were one of the few people apparently in the entire world who said, well, well, let's examine not only what's the implication of this going forward, but listen to the children who have already been produced by these unions and technology. Exactly. I, and, you know, like I think you have, have rightly pointed out in other spaces that there are some philosophers that are talking about this. There are some researchers that absolutely have pointed to this. But so far, we have not had a adult child led movement of the children who have actually been created and raised in these modern families. Um, and with the flagship aspect of this being their own voices and their own stories, um, you know, we in terms of those who support the natural family, the married mother and father for life, raising their children together, have always had the best research. We've always had solid data. Um, we've always had primarily the five major religions of the world in agreement. But what we've never had are the stories of kids. And so that's what we wanted to do. One of the things we wanted to do in this book is to show you the unvarnished truth of what happens when adult desire is prioritized above the rights of children. Um, because once you read the stories, there's no way that you can now believe the lie that, oh, the kids will be fine. Yeah, they're absolutely amazing. They're almost like short stories in themselves of, of, of for example, one boy talked about the pain of divorce and he talked about if you talk about emotional baggage, he says, I had literal baggage. I had to pack up my knapsack and go on every other weekend to my father's house, my mother's house. And I was the one that had to, to trudge along and to, at their convenience, not mine. Yeah. And I like that. The, the baggage that he carried was physical and emotional. Well, and as we're going to talk about a lot in this interview, um, there's a lot of different aspects of the family structure, family formation that is novel, specifically around reproductive technologies. But I will say that the chapter that impacted me the most was the chapter on divorce mm -hmm. and the long lasting physical, emotional, mental, psychological impacts that are on children for life often um, as a result of parental divorce. Um, and I believe it was that story that said, I, I just felt like a Sherpa. You know what I mean? And some of the, uh, some of the other stories are like, uh, uh, the people that I loved the most were never in the same room together. Do you understand that? Mm. Like they, they did, they hardly even knew the other ones existed. And um, probably the most shocking thing that I learned when I was doing the research for that is 50%, um, close to 50% of children in split homes actually develop two personalities. They literally become different people mm. um, because, you know, there's one set of rules, one worldview, different secrets to keep at their dad's house, and then they go to their mom's house and have to become a totally different person. So, um, you know, as we move forward in this interview, 
um, as and as we like to say it, them before us, um, in the world of them before us, no adult gets a pass. Um, you know, this worldview of children's right to their own mother and father makes demands of every adult, single and married and gay and straight. Um, so, you know, it's there's we have been harming children um, by adult centric perspectives way before you know we started extracting sperm and egg from people. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that that the, the adult centric part, and I'd like to quote from the the introduct the forward to your book by the noted legal scholar and moral philosopher Robert B. George, and it's a very moving forward in his in the book, and he says, I'm quoting him. When children come to be regarded as lifestyle accessories, products, commodities, objects of adult consumer preference, then adults will suppose that they, single or married, have a right to a child if they happen to want one. It will then seem like a denial of human rights to object to an adult consumer's decision to produce a child in a lab rather than accepting the child in act of marital love or to deprive a child of his or her biological parents. But that is exactly backward. The rights as opposed to desires in question here are the rights of the child. And that's what you're. And that's what you've written about so powerfully in the book. Yeah. So children have rights. I think that if you're in the conservative world, you are familiar with the fact that children have a right to life. Unfortunately, there are some conservatives that are a little squeamish about the idea that children have a right to their own mother and father. So the first thing we do in the book um, is chapter one, where we dispel that myth that children don't really have a right, do they? Nope, they absolutely do. You know, both based on natural law based on, um, you know, the most widely ratified treaty in the world, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and based on your own personal experience. You know, if you drill down to your own childhood, um, you'll probably discover that neither your mother nor your father were optional, and your development and identity um, and well-being would have been greatly impacted if you had lost one or the other. Mm. Or you can look back on your life because you're one of the 50% of the people out there who did not have the daily intact, healthy, flourishing relationship with your own mother and father, and probably say, that was one of the most painful aspects of my life. So, you know, no matter how you look at this, um, children have rights from a philosophical perspective, to a natural law perspective, to a social science perspective. And now hopefully in the book, we share the stories, which really drive it home. Yeah, I think it was very touching and very moving and very enlightening and illuminating in that the level of, of, of anger of these children at the, at the idea that they're told over and over, you were, well, you don't have a mother and father, but you were wanted. We wanted, we spent thousands of dollars to get you and you, you, you and, and they're, and, and the, the, the emotional burden that they have of suppressing any, any, they, they, they see they're treated as if they're being ungrateful. If they say, I miss having a father, I miss having a mother and I love you. My, 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 could you discuss the term social parents? That might yeah. be a good place to, to, to make clear the terminology of the book. Yes. And um, I'll even back up and just kind of give this a broader frame. Um, and that is that, you know, we recognize that mother loss and father loss has been a part of humanity since time began. Um, and so we used to have even generations of children who experienced father loss after war. You know, mothers mm -hmm. used to routinely die in childbirth. Um, but we are no longer experiencing mother and father loss primarily due to tragedy. Now, most of today's children who are motherless and fatherless are mother and fatherless by intention. One or both of the parents d decided to have it be that way, either mm. through one adult abandoning their responsibility um, or simply intentionally creating a family that would exclude a mother or father. Mm. And so what we've found is that those desire-based losses, not the tragically-based losses, but the desire-based losses all sort of have this similar effect on children where they end up 
needing to the burden of accommodating and being understanding and being supportive falls to them instead of the adult being the one who is supposed to be supportive, understanding, and accommodating of the child. And so you do find in each of these three categories, children of divorce, children with LGBT parents, and children created through reproductive technologies, um, that there is this sort of form of, you should be grateful, you're so lucky, right? And you can hear that narrative. Well, you're so, two Christmases, you're so lucky. Oh, you get mm. to celebrate your birthday twice, you're so lucky. Um, you know, or children with same-sex parents. Oh, you have two moms that love you, you're so lucky. Or the kids of reproductive technologies. Wow, your parents spent $100,000 to create you. You're so loved and wanted. And so you can hear those echoes, right? Because that desire-based parental loss does foist on the child this, this expectation of, gratitude and you need to support the choices of the parents. And I think that's one reason why there is some uh, psychological burden placed on the child that you see fleshed out in the research that we, you know, pour out in each of these chapters. Now to your answer about social parents, this is a term that I think has most heavily been used among the donor conceived community, children created through sperm and egg oh, really? donation. Huh. It's theirs because much of the time they are raised off, you know, originally by a heterosexual mother and father, you know, infertile heterosexual couples were the first to, you know, have widespread use of sperm donation. And so the people who are the oldest um, created through reproductive te- technologies are not children of um, lesbian mothers, for example. It originally began with infertile heterosexual couples. Um, and so they didn't have a term, you know, for my two moms um, or, you know, my single mother by choice. They were raised in traditional households, but the parent raising them was not a, one of them was not a biological parent. So the term they use to describe this is the social parent. Right? This is from the late, the late 1970s. Louise Brown would be around 1978. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, so the sperm donation has been around even before that. Oh, really? um, and then egg donation, um, you know, because sperm is much easier to extract than yeah. eggs, sperm donation has been fairly widespread for the last really since the late 60s, it began mm-hmm. um, egg donation when they figured out how to stimulate um, the ovaries to generate a massive amount of egg release per month and then extract them and preserve them um, kind of really started happening more in the 90s. Um, and now with the advent of um, widespread use of IVF and the outbreak of commercial surrogacy, you know, now we have more surrogate-born children. And so um, as we discuss in the book, a lot of times it takes quite a long time for kids to get to the point where they feel like they are free to share their stories and they have enough distance from their childhood to reflect on how their family structure impacted them. In my story gathering um, enterprise, I've noted that a lot of times they're much older than, um, you know, uh, 28 is about the earliest that we tend to see people share. They need to be out of the home for about 10 years before they have the time and the space to mm-hmm. really reflect, right? And so um, we've got a lot of kids created through sperm donation who are talking about the impact of being raised outside of a relationship with both biological parents, a fewer, fewer egg donors and hardly any children born via surrogate because it's going to be decades before these children are free enough to share their stories themselves. Yeah, you made the point. I, I, I do want to correct myself because you, you, you corrected me in a good point that the sperm donation was really, at least it hit the headlines with Shock, with William Shockley and Robert Graham, was it? In, in the early 70s? Oh. So sure, that was, Robert Graham so, of the Genius Sperm Bank. 
Yeah. In, yes. Mm-hmm. We do quote um, one product of the genius sperm bank, Nicholas Isol, um, because sperm donation has always had a eugenics flavor to it. Um, you know, that was one instance of outright um, eugenics t- tinkering um, when it came to reproductive technologies. But even children created um, in more mainstream clinics would report that they feel like they were shopped for, you know, that you were looking for the ideal donor, the ideal genetic material, whether that be racially, or did you go to an Ivy League school? um, Or were you, um, you know, white donors, white gametes, especially when it comes to egg donation, um, garner higher prices than those gametes of brown women. So there's always been this aspect of genetics. um, But really, many donor conceived children these days are pretty sickened by that. Yeah, I want to read a passage, if if you don't mind, from the book in which a, a donor conceived person writes about that. And he said, he's writing, he's writing to prospective parents. And he says, he's telling them, think about the moral and bioethical implications of this. He says, to quote him, he says, you could also be complicit in eugenics, dysgenics, genetic homogenization and incest. If you use a standard fertility clinic, which discriminates against people based on height, weight, sexual orientation, race, socioeconomic status, and biological diversity, you are complicit in in selective breeding. You are complicit in saying that certain lives are more worthy of existing than others. You are giving up your rights to ever say you support people with any differences. You'll be treating your child like a pedigree dog. And you say, lest you think the author is over-dramatizing, gamete selling is absolutely subject to market forces. Shoppers could expect to pay more for donors with more desirable traits. That's really scary. So this really is um, the undeniable aspect to the fact that this is a marketplace of children. There is no other way to understand what is taking place in the world of reproductive technology. And that's one reason why we appropriately labeled this big fertility. And we didn't Mm -hmm. coin that phrase. Um, That was a documentary put together by the Center for Bioethics and Culture about big fertility um, and why money is what drives so many of these IVF surrogacy donor conceived arrangements. It is completely profit driven. It is not about the children. And very often it's not even about the um, sellers, those selling the sperm, egg and womb. They often receive the same level or some level of exploitation in the process as well. So um, this is a marketplace. This is not altruistic. These fertility clinics are not there to find um, the best home for children. The children go to whoever can pay. And anything can be purchased. Yeah, it's amazing. In your book, there's a wonderful, or I shouldn't say wonderful, powerful passage that's gripping. It's where you compare your process, the process that you and your entire family had to go through in order to adopt your son legally from China. And you even your family members had to be fingerprinted. And then you contrast it with, well, how do you get a, a, a surrogate? How does surrogacy work? Well, it's basically you find a woman and you pay her money. That's exactly right. Yes, we we often will hear the objection, well, third-party reproduction, sperm, egg donation, surrogacy, it's really just like adoption. But the reality is it's almost the exact opposite of adoption. And we spend the last half of Chapter 9 on adoption, contrasting reproductive technologies and the institution of adoption. Um, you know, first of all, we talk about how in adoption, the child is the client. When I worked at a Chinese adoption agency before I had kids, um, my founder, the founder and director of my organization told me very clearly, the adults are the ones that are paying us, but they are not the client. Mm. If adoption goes well, 
every child that needs parents is going to find a loving home. But not every parent that wants a kid, not every adult who wants a kid is going to get one, right? Mm -hmm. We are there to serve the child, not serve the adult. So it's the exact opposite in the reproductive technology world. The adult is the client. The goal is to get them a baby literally at any cost, at the cost Mm -hmm. of the baby, at the cost of their pocketbook. That is the goal. The second way that adoption is different from reproductive technologies is As we discuss in the book, by the time you get to this chapter, chapter nine out of 10, you will have seen the variety of wounds created through mother and father loss, right? It may be experienced in different ways, but it creates a wound, one that actually can be psychologically measured a lot of the time. So adoptees are not exempt from that. Children who who lose their relationship with their first family and are adopted, that relationship begins with loss, no matter how loving, wonderful, and stable the adoptive parents are. In adoption, the adults are seeking to mend that wound. Children created through third-party reproduction are being raised by the adults who inflicted the wound. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. Right. Adoptive parents did not decide for that child to lose a relationship with their first family, but The people raising the child in third-party reproduction situations are the adults who determine that that child's mother or father would be gone. Um, And so what follows is that, you know, in adoption, the adults are seeking to fill a void that's missing for the children, whereas in third-party reproduction, often the child fills the void for the adult. And that, again, creates a huge psychological burden on the child. And finally, we point out that in this broken world, adoption is sometimes necessary, um, but Third-party reproduction may be very desired, but is never necessary. So Mm. adoption is a child-centric institution, um, and reproductive technologies are an adult-driven market. They are exactly the opposite. Yeah, there was a uh, one of the testaments testimonies in your book is is related to that. It was really touching and it's very convoluted, but it's basically, I believe, it's a young man who is asked by his, I believe it was his his he was conceived by his donor conceived and his 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 social mother or the mother that has, I guess, taken him in or is I guess I'll use the term social mother in this case, but he. He's told, well, we're going to meet a friend of mine who's lost her father and, and you have something in common because you don't have a father either. And the boy is very angry in, years later and he says he wanted to wish he'd said to her or he said at the time, I didn't lose my father. You deprived me of my father. My father, whoever he is, wherever he is, is not dead, presumably, or he could be dead, but you chose to deprive me of him. This woman lost her father through a natural process and don't equate us. We're not the same. That's right. That was very touching. Right. And, you know, we talk a little bit about that, too, that um, children who lose their parent to tragedy um, often have a whole community surrounding them and validating them and mourning with them. Not so with children who experience desire-based parental loss. Um, Those children often have to hide their feelings, stuff their feelings, and pretend like they are okay with the loss because they are being raised by the adults who wanted it that way. Yeah, there's an amazing, and also it's it's so complex, these family arrangements, because oftentimes the parents, there may, there may be lesbians who are divorced, and there's one point in which a very complicated situation where the mother says of the donor child who was the social parent, and even, even saying it is difficult, but she says something like, well, take your kid away, take your kid away because he's not even mine anyway, even though she was 
Billy, she, maybe she was the birth mother of someone else's sperm or, or someone else's yeah. egg, and it was so complicated. Yeah, that believe I believe that was the story of the stepmother, yeah. <laughs> who was watching this take place from the outside, right? So that was a heterosexual couple that created a child um, together, where he was the biological father, but they used an egg donor. But then when they divorced, the mother had custody of the child that wasn't biologically related to her, and um, that she very much um, made it clear that she didn't even consider the child her own because the reality is that biology actually does play a dominant role in both how we relate to our own children and our own parents um, and the identity formation that takes place within a child. We have spent so much time, probably in the service of validating adoptive parents and adoptive children, minimizing the importance of biology in the family. Um, and that's a really big mistake. It's a mistake that has led us to this place where we believe that you can cut and paste children into any and every adult relationship and household, and um, that supposedly the intentions of the adults are going to paper over um, any loss that the child experiences. Um, and you won't, you will be dispelled of that very quickly if you choose to read this book. Yeah, one of one of the things is another fascinating story in the book, and I believe it applies to adoptive children, but particularly to donor conceived children, when, when either group or especially donor conceived children finally find out that they're as adults, that or early or in adolescence, it's, 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 it varies, I guess, when they're when they find out or, or they find out on their own. But they say they don't even like to look in the mirror anymore because yeah. they they feel that I thought I looked like my social or what I thought was my father, and he's not actually my father. He's kind of my the person who purports to be my father, but I don't I don't look like him, and I thought I did, and now I don't even and I thought I had his hands, and I don't have his hands, and it's it's just. It's it's gripping the way it's almost like out of science fiction that I'm not who I thought I was and I don't look like who I who I thought I look like and it's amazing. We spend um, chapter one talking about why children have rights and making the case for children's rights, but the very next chapter is called Biology Matters, mm -hmm. and Biology Matters primarily for two reasons. Number one, it gifts children the adults who are most protected of, invested in, and connected to children. Um, now, all of us can think of heroic step parents who are filling in the gap for children whose biological parent was neg negligent or absent or or tragically missing. Um, but on the whole, the safest, most connected to, most invested in adults in a child's life will be their own biological mother and father. And mm. there is no statistical case to be made to the contrary. But the other reason why biology matters is because of biological identity. Um, and children who are raised apart from their biological parents, whether it's children created children of adoption or children created through third-party reproduction is this sense of identity that you get from knowing from whom you come. Mm. And so adoptees have been struggling with this. Um, you know, our country has a long history of adoption, some of it checkered, some of it um, glorious. Uh, but none of that minimizes the reality that many children struggle when they don't know and aren't connected to their biological parents. So adoptees first started to um, kind of experience this, and the term was coined in the 60s, um, kind of as the children of the baby scoop era were coming of age. Could um, you, uh, Katie, could you tell us about the baby scoop era? I had never heard that term. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's the era um, really in the kind of after the sexual revolution when there was a lot more children born out of wedlock, um, well, probably a little bit pre-sexual revolution where it was still highly stigmatized to be a single mother. Um, and so many women who were um, pregnant would be whisked away to um, 
homes for unwed mothers, their babies would be born, they would be placed with, um, uh, you know, a heterosexual couple who would then raise the child, oftentimes not telling the child that they were adopted. Um, and then sometimes telling, the, you know, having no contact with the birth mother at all. And it was this sort of society-wide um, understanding or belief that children were better off adopted rather than raised by a single mother. Um, and, uh, you know, I, there's definitely loss when a child's being raised by a single mother, but many of those single mothers um, experience some coercion when it comes to relinquishing their child. And um, so that baby scoop era was this time where um, children created children of unwed mothers were largely um, shuffled over to heterosexual married parents. Um, and many of those kids, like I said, didn't even know that they were adopted, but experienced some psychological trauma and loss and bewilderment nonetheless. So even kids who were raised by parents of the same race, for example, white kids being raised by white parents would still experience this genealogical bewilderment, this sense of like, who am I? Where do I belong? I don't really feel like I fit. Um, and now children created through sperm and egg donation report feeling... <sighs> very similar feelings, right? Even mm. though they are almost always raised by one biological parent, still there's something in them that makes them say, what, I almost feel like an alien in my own body, right? Or mm. a sense that I felt like something was wrong, even though I couldn't put my finger on it if they weren't told. So biological identity um, is a huge aspect of this story for kids created and intentionally separated, especially from their mother or father. And for those that doubt me, <laughs> um, I would just say, you know, the scores the, the thousands and thousands of children who are taking to the internet and oftentimes mm. spending years to reconstruct a family tree um, through whatever information they can get from you know marriage and death records um, to 23andMe results um, mm. to somehow find some shred of somebody that looks like them um, is all the refutation that you need if you still are swallowing the biology doesn't matter Kool-Aid. Well, there, there was an interesting, another point in the story, and there's so many stories in the book that I'll never forget. And one of them was a woman who felt soiled because of her very existence, because she felt that her mother, as you say in the book, or you quote people who talk about your the books, are, the children of donors are often almost chosen out of a catalog. And the woman felt that her existence was kind of a eugenic experiment, that her mother wanted a child that looked like her, even though they weren't related but she felt that she was kind of this creepy creation, a sort of eugenics accessory that she, the accessory in both both senses of the word, accessory to her mother to be carted around, but also an accessory to this eugenics program. And that she felt that I'm not a natural child. I'm part of this grotesque experiment. And it, could you talk about the, 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 the identity crisis of the people that, of the eugenic aspect of it. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, I believe I'm trying to, there's about 130 stories in the book. Um, mm. And obviously I've read all of them, but it's hard for me to exactly place them. But I believe that that's the one where she's like, I felt like some kind of Build-A-Bear. Like you went to the mm. mall and like you did a Build-A-Bear with me. Mm. Um, but that's not what children are. Um, and, you know, if this sounds fantastical to some of your listeners, you can pause this podcast and Google egg donor catalog because that's literally what they call it. They call it an yeah. donor catalog or a sperm donor catalog. And you can view a lot of these online. I'm sure that you have to pay to get access to some of the actual pictures of the people's uh, genetic material that you'll be purchasing. But they call it a catalog. Because think back to your, you know, 
JCPenney catalog days. And that's really it. You know, what do you want? What do you want, you know, half of the genetic or all of the genetic material of your offspring to look like? And, you know, from the adult's perspective, you know, which we make the case over and over in the book that every conversation about marriage and family is obsessively focused and told from the perspective of the desires of the adults. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we look at it from the adult's perspective, you'd say, well, of course you want a baby that's going to be your own race. Or, well, of course you don't want to have the, a donor from somebody who has a mental illness. Well, of course you want to make sure that this person is, you know, has some kind of physical appeal to them. Well, doesn't that just make sense? Of course you want a biological connection to your child. That really matters. But then when you flip it and look at, at it from the child's perspective, why wouldn't it also matter to the child to have a biological connection with their missing parent? Why is it that we're so understanding and sympathetic to the perspective of adults? But once you flip it around and the child says, I feel like a product that was created. Mm. You thought that biology was so important because you wanted a biological connection to your child. But now you think that love makes a family and biology doesn't matter when I express my desire to know my biological father. I mean, it is such an upside down world. It's a world where we have been conditioned to believe that adults should have everything that they want. And indeed, they have a right to everything they want when it comes to family. Um, and that mentality has led to and will continue to lead to generations of harmed children. Well, you mentioned uh, pausing the podcast and people could do that because I, I might even encourage them because one of the, as I researched this interview, I just Googled phrases like adoptive or genetic, genetic website reveals um, identity of, you know, the father is not my father. And there are amazing stories about people that, yeah, that, that they find out that they can't possibly, or they do it. They just are out of curiosity. They're worried that they might have some genetic defect that they're, they're, they're considering becoming parents themselves. And they just want to make sure they're not passing along an inheritable trait that is, 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 just is undesirable. You know, if they have cystic fibrosis, they just want to make sure they're doing the right, you know, they're being careful. I shouldn't sound like I'm encouraging aborting a, a child, but but they're just curious about their own backgrounds. And and they come back and it, it reveals the genetic testing that you're not, your father is not biologically your father. And then they, they're they just sh shocked. And and, and this, these stories are, and, and they'll probably more of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because originally when sperm donation first came on the scene, it was often recommended that they not that the parents not tell the children. Oftentimes the doctor mm -hmm. or whoever's involved say they will never know. There's, mm -hmm. It'll just cause them distress. There's no need to tell them that they were created through sperm donation. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's obviously much more common to hide a child's origin when they are raised in a heterosexual um, household. In same-sex headed households or single mothers by choice, they are much more likely to be told at an early age that they were conceived through sperm or egg donation because obviously there has to be some kind of explanation for how they got there. But many of the earliest recipients of donor sperm were told, don't tell your children. So you are exactly right. Many people are now finding out 20 years, 30, 40 years later, that the person who has raised them all their life is not actually their own father. Um, this new kind of DNA at home DNA testing is in the eyes of many children created through sperm and egg donation going to and end donor anonymity. So, you know, you can do a donation from what they call an open ID, open identified um donor, someone who's willing to have contact and share information after the child gets to be 18, or an anonymous donor, where there is no promise of any kind of connection. In fact, 
in essence, the donor is saying, I don't want contact. I don't want to be known. I won't give you information. And those an anonymous arrangements uh, were preferred by many intended parents because the likelihood of having somebody else come in and, um, you know, the fears of, oh, are they going to want custody or are they going to like come in and claim my child or it feels too threatening to have the other biological parent there. So for a long time, anonymous arrangements were preferred among intended parents. Mm. Well, now the widespread use of at-home DNA kits are going to put an end to that. Every, every donor conception story is going to be open ID because the internet is not going to let it be any other way. So um, yeah, people who are promised anonymity are in for a big surprise. And so are the kids who were never told. Yeah, it's interesting too. It doesn't even have to be the father accidentally just not realizing that he could be tracked down. It could be a cousin who does it. That there's, there's a, that it, it can be very few, several steps away, but it, 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 the child is nevertheless able to figure it out, right? They create a family tree and they're able to somehow track it down or. Absolutely. And, and they do track it down, right? Mm -hmm. Once, once that uh, it can often, it can become somewhat of a obsessive drive mm -hmm. um, to find out. And you know what? We talk about this as if it's bizarre, but it's not. Mm. Probably one of the most universally recognized longings within all humanity is to know and be known by the two people responsible for our existence. So the fact that we are shocked or wonder, well, why aren't they just happy? They had two parents who loved them is, is such a modern convention, right? This is something that has mattered to all of humanity all throughout history. Um, you know, we, oft, we share this story in the book of, you know, we say, Name a movie or a great work of fiction um, where the child is seeking the identity of their long lost uncle <laughs> and there's nothing. Well, well, what about the story of a child who is trying to uncover the identity of their mother's boyfriend and mm. it, you can't find any. But then we say, name a movie or a story where somebody is seeking to find who their father is. And they're driven to figure out who is my father? What is my identity? And you've got stories of antiquity. You know, you've got like Shakespeare's Pericles, you know, Star, Star Wars and Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you've got um, Disney did this Pixar or maybe I'm getting that mixed up, but um, the one where the onward, where the boys were just wanting to have one more chance to talk to their father who had died. Um, and they're on this quest to recreate him so they can have a connection with him. I mean, these stories of father loss and trying to find that man, that one person are gripping because mm. they speak to a universal reality, which is that all of us are made to be known and loved by both our mother and father. Um, and biologically, it's a lot easier to lose a connection to your father than your mother. And so these stories of fatherless children hunting for their dad have always been a part of the fabric of, of the arts. So, um, you know, it's in our art. Uh, I think it's in our own stories. And yet when these kids say, I'm desperate to know the identity of my father, so much of the time they're met with, you should just be grateful to be alive, don't you think? Mm. Yes, and, and 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 another aspect of the book and getting away from fathers and to towards siblings. I mean that that's also the, the fathers are incredibly moving, but also the fact that these these children often find out that they have they're they're, they're, they're they say to the parent, adoptive parents you do, or I'm sorry the, or or many cases in which case they're donor or adoptive that you're depriving me of my right to know that I have siblings and with the sperm donations it's shocking that. There have been cases where there are dozens or even hundreds, possibly, and they, and they in in some regions supposedly 
I mean, I've read that there is a danger of inadvertent incest, that people can actually end up dating a, a half-brother yeah. or something like that, which is pretty... pretty... There, yeah, we don't have it in the book, but there is a case on record where two half-siblings ended up getting married because mm. um, they one of them did not know that they were sperm donor created. Um, but there, that is one of the highest concerns of children created through reproductive technologies is that they will inadvertently um, have a sexual relationship with and or marry one of their half siblings. Um, but yes, like this is, I, I, people don't understand, maybe, uh, maybe they do, but most people have no idea how completely unregulated the fertility mm. industry is, um, that there, it is a wild west anything goes. If you've got the money, you can have it. Uh, and so there are very few limits in terms of how many donations, how many clinics you can donate at. So even if one clinic does have a, okay, we're going to cap you out at 20, you can go to a whole bunch of different clinics and max out. Um, so a lot of the times uh, children do have dozens of half siblings. There are cases where People have had hundreds of half siblings. Mm -hmm. You know, one woman in the book talks about how shocked she was because she found out later in life that she was conceived through sperm donation and went through an entire grief process of grieving the social father that she had loved so much because she thought she was related to him and then grieving the fact that there was a stranger out there that she desperately wanted to know and then grieving the fact that she has dozens or perhaps hundreds of siblings, many of whom probably live in her town, many of whom probably do not know that they were created through sperm and egg donation. Mm -hmm. So now her children have hundreds of first cousins and second cousins that probably don't know that they are related either. And so we are really messing with like the gene pool uh, with humanity in general um, by stepping so far outside of the natural processes of um, baby creation. I don't think that we actually know the full impact yet. Well, I'd like on the on the topic of baby creation. I'd like to talk to you about some uh, a phrase you use in the and well, the, you talk about baby making and baby taking. And I'd like to compliment you on the fact that in the book, it's not a conservative book. It's not a liberal book. It's a book about biology and children. And and one of the fact one of the you're critical in some of the of the progressive left for sweeping under the carpet, the, the, the damage done to, to children of same-sex couples in, in emotionally. But you're also critical of the right for emphasizing, you talk about the right is so focused on abortion and baby taking that you're not, they're not emphasizing the ramifications of baby making. And I think that's an, 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 an I wonder if you get pushback from conservatives who say, who think that you're, well, you, we have to focus on what's really happening, what's, what's crucial. And you're saying this is crucial. It takes convincing. But uh, once you hear it, um, again, it's really hard to shake it. But we do yeah. outline quite a few similarities um, between abortion and reproductive technologies, um, mainly that both of them base their practice on a child commodifying worldview. Hmm. So, right, the abortion industry says if a child is unwanted, then you can force the child out of existence, even if it violates their right to life. Reproductive technology says if a child is very wanted, you can force the child into existence, even hmm. if it violates their right to their own mother and father. So hmm. both of them depend on 
their foundation is not child rights. The foundation is what do adults want? And then the child must sacrifice so that we can have what we want. So that's really, we talk about how abortion and reproductive technologies are two sides of the same coin. And pro-life people really freak out about this because, you know, we love babies. I love babies. I think babies are precious and wonderful. Um, And so it's harder to get into the mentality of, yes, but babies are not objects of rights. They are subjects of rights. And it's their rights in both of those conversations, right? In the abortion conversation, you often have a woman who is overwhelmed, scared, undersupported, afraid, um, sad, right? And her emotions are valid and deserve empathy and support. But none of her emotions justify validating a child's loss of life. And in situations where you've got um, a, a couple whose marriage is struggling or somebody with same-sex attraction who would be an incredible mother or incredible father or you've got a heterosexual couple dealing with the heartbreak the monthly heartbreak of infertility those adults are also going through incredible loss and struggle and longing and sadness but none of their feelings justify sacrificing a child's right to life so that's what we talk about in this book and in our movement is in the world of children's rights The only solution is for adults to do hard things Mm. in all of these cases, because the only other option is to make the children do the hard things. And we think that's an injustice. Yes, I'd like to emphasize, too, it's not just that the children, when they're grown, are emotionally damaged. It's the the reproductive technologies themselves talk about, you you, you comment on how chilling the term is, surplus embryos. And it isn't, I, I think that conservatives may close their eyes to the fact that I realize that you want a, a family, and I'm sorry that you're in that you have problems with infertility. But the way that this the, the technology is inherently immoral. I mean, or, or, or can be the way it's done. If you have, a, I mean, you give examples of pe- women who were in surrogacy. We'll get to surrogacy. It's in a moment. But they talk about women are pressured if a child, if there are twins, and or or one of them has Down syndrome or something like that. She's under contract. You know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a truly in an enforceable legal fashion, I guess, to to abort that child or one or one of one or one of the, the father says or the, the family that want the infertile couple. I don't want twins. I just want the one. Right. Yeah. So, we and, and for your readers, um, what we've done in the book is obviously I think that it's a compelling read all the way through. And credit yeah. to that goes to my co-author, Stacy, who just has such an incredible way with words. But we've also structured this to be um, a bit of a resource. So our table of contents is detailed. So you can go straight to the place in the surrogacy chapter where we talk about abortion, the prevalence of abortion, how abortion functions as um, quality control and quantity control when it comes yeah. to the practice of reproductive technologies. Um, you know, back to you talking about surplus embryos. Um, what really wakes the pro-life world up is to say, you know, only about 7% of lab-created embryos will be born alive. Mm. Only 7%. IVF, really in any form, is not a child-friendly process. You are um, foisting risk and loss on the most vulnerable among us in your pursuit to have a family, right? Whether that's with the person that you're married to, whether that's with a stranger you've never met. Um, When you are making babies in laboratories, um, disproportionately, the children are going to bear the risk and the cost of your decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in a, yeah, so it's this idea of making babies in laboratories. Sometimes it ends up going well for adults. 
it rarely goes well for the kids. Yeah, that I think of the grim joke, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and, yeah. it, it and, does. and what goes wrong is um, babies are deemed non-viable and discarded. Babies are frozen perpetually in a freezer for decades and finally discarded. Babies that are unwanted are donated to research and um, used for God knows what. Um, babies who are the wrong sex are thawed and discarded. Um, babies are who finally maybe have parents who decide I don't have the money to continue paying the storage fee for the full genetic siblings of the two children that I've successfully brought to term. Uh, maybe I'll let somebody else gestate them and raise them instead. And now you have those siblings who are growing up apart from their biological parents wondering why did they keep them but not me? Mm. So, um, Really, unfortunately, the answer to what adults want in some of these situations is no, if it means that a kid has to sacrifice for them. Mm. Well, on a lighter note, you mentioned your your co-author, Stacey Manning, and you're very um, appreciative of her role and, and you, the fact that she's a, a gifted and funny writer. And I just want to say that she is funny. There were, there were, I mean, I don't want to paint the book as being just unrel unrelentingly grim because there's a lot of joy in it in terms of of the siblings being reunited. And there's, there's some things that did make me laugh as Stacey wrote. And you say, uh, you say about the, the aim of them before us, both as an organization as, and as a book, you said, our goal with the utmost humility is a global takeover of all conversations around marriage, family, and parenthood. And I love the chutzpah of that and the, the droll, the drollness of it. It's very funny, but it's a global well, takeover. That's all. <laughs> that's all. Just a global takeover. Um, if we have our way, um, whatever, Whenever this these conversations arise, whether it's, you know, in a conversation with your friend who's, you know, 39 and hasn't met Mr. Wright and just feels like she needs to be a mother um, and is going to head down to the sperm bank and um, just, you know, go it herself or um, whether you're talking about a policy um, that is going to strip the words mother and father from your parenthood laws. Mm -hmm. What we hope is that no matter what state or country or living room those conversations take place in, that everybody would say children have rights, their rights need to come first, and policy and good decisions will flow from that. When we properly center it, these decisions and these conversations around the rights of child Good policy, good personal decision making is the result. Mm. Well, I'm just going to say that the media portrays these these families as if they're just literally a big joke. I know in the film The Big Chill many years ago that one of the plot lines was this lawyer who was her her biological clock was ticking, and she's she's the her friend asks her husband to impregnate her, and there's a scene where they're where they're you know making love to us, if you can call it that, but it's just a big joke that that's, he's going to be, he's going to father the child and she'll go off and raise the child. And apparently he, he won't, it's not, it's not clear. And they don't even address the movie. Is he going to have any connection to this child or, or what? Yeah. It's just, it's a, it's fascinating that that, 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 that it's just, they don't, as you say, they don't have films that taught that show the, well, there is a film that's in Philomena, which is interesting because that's a very controversial. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's about the big scoop era and the mm. Irish woman, but it's but I don't like that film, and that it's very anti-Catholic. It portrays the Catholic Church as this is this evil incarnate, but it does show what it's like for an adult woman who's seeking her. She's seeking him because she's she was he was separate. Her child, the son, is separated from her. Very yeah, uh, we. I think the opening 
lines of chapter one, we talk about how adult centric all these conversations are. Um, it is rare. It is very rare. And so I would dare you guys who are listening to this, when you see headlines about celebrity divorces or um, mm. some law that's, you know, you know, Israel just um, deemed that gay men um, and gay men could now use surrogacy um services, right? They could now hire women to gestate children for them. And all of the coverage was about how unjust this law had been to gay men. There are hardly any conversations, headlines about what about the kids? Mm. What about the kids? We are obsessively focused on adults um, when it comes to matters of sexuality, marriage, parenthood, family. Um, You know, look look at one of the monthly articles from the New York Times um, Times talking about the glories of open non-monogamy. Um, yeah. What about the kids? What about the kids who are going to be sharing living spaces with unrelated adults? Um, when it's men, those unrelated adults are statistically the greatest risk to them in terms of ne- abuse and neglect. So uh, we very, very rarely think about this from the child's perspective. And that is honestly what we hope to change yeah, that was a very important statistic in your book that also was new to me, that the fact that the greatest threat to a child is not a child abductor or a home invader. It's a it's his the the, the, un, the cohabiting boyfriend of, of the single mom. Yeah. And that's that was scary. Thankfully, um, you know, most boyfriends or stepfathers are not abusive. Um, but when there is abuse and there is a non-biologically related man in the home, he is the primary suspect uh, that there really is something quite dangerous um, to children when an unrelated man moves into the house. And I've seen this, you know, now that I, when I do this work, people share their stories all the time, all the time, all the time of abuse at the hands of a stepfather or, you know, mom was shacking up with somebody, you know, just between their ages of 10 and 11. And guess when they were abused? Between the ages of 10 and 11. Um, so we are fools. We are fools. Um, and we are honestly making child victims if we refuse to acknowledge um, the safety that goes along with biological connection. Um, and honestly, so much of this has been in the service of um, validating adults, right? That we have been so uh, so captured by love makes a family. And, um, mm. you know, if the adults are happy, the kids will be happy that we have n- neglected um, many of the natural structures created to actually ensure that children are safe and loved. You know, instead of just, when people, people say to me a lot, well, kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved. And like, well, congratulations, you're one of us. Because if you're serious about kids being safe and loved, then you believe that every child unless extreme circumstances take place, every child should be raised in the married home of their mother and father, because statistically, the odds of them being safe and loved are the greatest in those households. And every other family arrangement is just going to um, drastically drop off in terms of their chance of being safe and loved. Well, well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Katie Faust about her book, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And Katie, we're talking about the, the language of child's rights, and it's interesting that you got involved, I believe, in this whole issue because of the the early Supreme Court, uh, is that correct, this is on, on same-sex marriage? Because I was just going to mention that Anthony Kennedy, you, you, you're, you're very funny in the book about saying that he was talking about the rights of children, and he was saying that in same-sex in same-sex ch- uh, marriages, these children are denied dignity, and, a, and another woman said, I wasn't, I wasn't emotional. A woman of, who was of that, of a kind of marriage, she said, 
I wasn't denied dignity because I was bullied because my parents were same sex. I was suffering because I didn't have a mother. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I got into this um, really in 2012, right after Obama evolved on the topic. (laughs) And uh, what I heard every major media outlet saying is, you're a bigot. There's no possible explanation for support for traditional marriage except bigotry, right? And it doesn't matter how many gay people that you love. It doesn't matter how well-reasoned you are. It doesn't matter that social science backs you up. Mm. If you don't support my political agenda, you are a bigot. Mm. And so that didn't sit well with me, Um, obviously. It didn't sit well with a lot of people. Um, One, because my mother has been in a relationship with another woman for uh, since I was 11. And I love her and I love her partner. I don't consider her partner my mother. I do consider her partner my friend. And thankfully, my mom and dad both were very involved in my life before and after the divorce. But this idea that animus and phobia and hatred motivates people who support traditional marriage was just insane. Uh, And then the other thing I heard the other side saying was um, kids don't need moms and dads right? They, two moms, two dads, they love it. And the problem with that is not the gay parent. The problem is the missing parent. There's always going to be a missing parent when um, kids have two moms or two dads. And I had worked with kids long enough, both in a context of adoption, but also in the context of decades of youth ministry, where I had not yet met a kid that was not profoundly harmed and wounded and grieving over their missing parent, no matter how that parent came to be lost. Uh, So I felt like they were lying about kids. So that Mm. is what initially got me involved in this. Um, And then once I went beyond just the marriage, the the topic of marriage, I started to see that this um, adult obsessive focus really was happening in every area of marriage and family and parenting from discussions about who should be on a child's birth certificate to Mm. normalizing polygamy. I mean, every single way that um, marriage and family is discussed in our world, it was all driven by what adults want. And either the children were not mentioned or if they were, it's because they loved it. They said, oddly, the kids that were inter, um, interviewed just loved all the decisions that their parents were making. And mm-hmm. yeah, so we did quote, um, I believe, my friend Heather Barwick. Um, and she and I co-authored an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision, where we did a lot of what's in this book. We just chalked it full of the stories of kids who expressed pain and loss over their missing mother or father, children raised by two parents. And and Heather did say, you know, the cause of my distress as a child was not because my two mothers couldn't legally marry. It was that I desperately wanted a father. A father, yeah. And, it, you know, it's really hard to feel like you desperately want a father in a community where women are saying that men aren't important and we don't need men. And she said the result on her was this deep confusion because she shouldn't want a father, right? What she heard is from that community is I'm bad for wanting a father, but there's no, I I dare you to find a kid who's able to stop themselves from wanting their mother or father. Um, You can't, right? This is a longing that naturally arises in children, no matter what era you're born in, no matter what country you're raised in. Um, This is something that comes naturally to kids. So unfortunately, I think Justice Kennedy got it exactly wrong. Um, And I believe that we are going to see the fallout of that in the next couple decades. Well, yeah, it's 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 just 
one one of the yeah i just want to quote on that on that topic that you say every departure from the married mother father household is at its core a threat to the rights of children and it, it's it's just it's just a very moving quote and i just want to emphasize that um one one of the things that again get about the the they're, they're expected to make the children the adults happy and accommodating them you say modern technologies and modern modern attitudes of modern technologies are creating a new wave of suffering children and was there one was there one particular story in the book that you felt was just that that was heart-wrenching to you or, gal- or galvanizing to you oh my gosh there's so many yeah there's so many and really it was um it was which of which do we include yeah um, you know, we probably began with about 250 stories wow. and, and cut it by half. There was just too much. And we cut, we, we had to make so short, I all, you know, we, we footnote every story in here. So you can go back and you can read the whole original story. Um, many of them pulled from different sites and different articles, um, many from our own website, because we do try to create a, a story bank where children feel that they can be honest about their loss. Mm-hmm. So it's all in there. But um, I, I, it's very hard to choose just one. Um, I think that there's one that really drove home, though, uh, this the split between the adult's perspective and the kid's perspective. And that was a woman who had donated her eggs and obviously hadn't had a second thought about donating her eggs, right? Because she's told, well, you're just an angel helping somebody to have a family and mm. um, biology doesn't matter and you're not going to be their mother. The person raising them is going to be their mother. And then several years later, she realized she was created through sperm donation and mm. went into an identity crisis, right? That she realized that not knowing her origins and not being connected to her own biological father, um, that it shocked her system. And you can even see in the quote where she talks about it, she uses so many spaces and dashes and because she literally is like, I don't even know how to articulate how this has upended my sense of self. Um, and so even the people who are going through this, right, a woman who's seen it from both sides, from the adult's perspective, you think, oh, no big deal. Once you look at it from the kid's perspective, it's it's not just a big deal. It ends up almost being their whole world. Well, one aspect of the book that I think is very important, and I'd like to talk to you about it, is that you came into this and you had to to gear up because you were not you were not a scholar and you suddenly said, you have to, I have to reach, I have to educate myself and the very, very rich literature on this topic. And, and I think one thing that's fascinating about the book is you make the point that the same sex, um, the, the opponents of same sex marriage did not use stories effectively, that they had the data, the social science data, but they did not tell, they didn't personalize it enough. And I think that's the strength of this book is that it is full of these personal stories and it does make clear the emotional cost to real people. Yeah, and and I, I wish that your that your Supreme Court brief had been read more widely, but of course the mainstream media is not gonna not gonna emphasize that. But but I think one thing that's that's shocking about the book is there is social science literature. It's just not cited by the left, or it's ignored or suppressed. Yeah, we, and and it's corrupted. I mean the whole the whole social the whole social science world is corrupted by that. It, it really is. That's very true. Um, I was just listening to a couple of scholars talk about um, how the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, when they validated um, children raised by same-sex parents and talked about how they're no different and sometimes even better, and the kind of distorted uh, 
the way that they had to twist and and do um, statistical gymnastics to arrive at that conclusion was stunning because um, you, you are for that to be true gender does not could not matter biology could not matter natural processes of reproduction could not matter um, parental loss could not matter I mean you have to you have to remove a lot of things that are um, not just statistically verifiable but self-evident for that conclusion to be valid. And yet so many of our institutions, whether it's academia or, um, you know, these major organizations um, have been so overtaken by ideology mm. that um, it no longer matters <laughs> what, what the data says, or they will, they will make the data say what they want it to say. Um, so, you know, we spend some time, especially when it comes to same-sex parents, um, really taking a look at those studies on same-sex parenting and talking about why they are so methodologically flawed Mm. Um, and then talking about the research, the, the few studies we do have that were done by um, robust, using robust social science methodology yeah. and how they paint a drastically different picture from those no difference conclusions. But, you know, you don't even need it. <laughs> you don't. I mean, all you need to say mm. is, OK, listen, if children created through divorce suffer these li drastic lifelong harms. And if children created through sperm and egg donation um, do not fare nearly as well as children um, raised by their own mother, biological mother, father, if children created through adoption raised by heterosexual couples suffer, if children who have lost a parent to death suffer incredible trauma that often lasts a lifetime, how is it that, and, and if all of those kids are then subsequently raised by heterosexual parents, you know, through remarriage or whatever, if they still have diminished outcomes. You're telling me that children raised by same-sex parents who all arrived in that household, either through death, divorce, abandonment, and subsequent adoption, and reproductive technologies, and who also lack the gender balance that those kids are doing no different or even better? I mean, you have to have such ideological glasses on to believe that. Um, it, don't tell me you're following the science because you're not. You're not even following common sense at that point. So um, there are major flaws in the way that we have talked about the research related to these topics. But again, um, we've always had good research, right? People who have supported mothers and fathers in marriage have always mm -hmm. had the best research. But research does not change hearts. Um, stories change hearts, right? And so that's what we try to do in the book is we are like, okay, here's 30 stories of kids raised by two moms or two dads. Did they love it? Did they believe that, you know, just being safe and loved was, you know, everything that they needed in life? Read their 30 stories. I dare you. I dare you. And then tell me that those kids are the outlier because they're really just articulating something that pretty much every child has always wanted, you know, the love of their mother and the love of their father. Um, so yes, it's the stories are the inescapable part. And then we follow up with the punch of the highest level of social science. Oh, absolutely. It's meticulous. The book is meticulously documented. If you look at the, the end notes, I read every, every word of the end notes and those are just, it's clear that, that you're, you're doing, you're no, you're no slouch when it comes to, to serious scholarship. And one, one aspect I think of interesting that, that even, even when the same sex marriage of these pretty bogus studies, because as you say, they're not randomized or they're, 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 they're self-reported. The parents are often the source of these, of these studies saying that there's no difference. And the parents, the, the, the homosexual parents say, 
oh, well, my kid is doing really well. Well, that's, of course, the parent, would, the parent who's, who's in this raising in the same sex household would say that. And that's just not science. But one aspect that they that some of the statistics, even of the of the the more uh, the other the scholarships, there was one indicator that seemed to be that the kids were of same sex household had a slight advantage in educational success. But my reaction to that was, well, if these parents are sufficiently affluent to produce these kids, possibly by donor, you know, donor conceived or or intentional parental loss, that they're presumably presumptively affluent, and if they're affluent then they're going to be able to spend more money. They'll have surplus income to spend on education. Yes. So that's, that, even that's not a good indicator. Right. There so. have been a couple of robust studies done that do show that some children of lesbian parents are above average when it comes to um, academics. And very interestingly, I, I run a secret group chat for <laughs> kids with same-sex parents. And so I asked them, like, were you guys good students? And they were like, yeah, we really were. Like a couple of them were really, really good. One of them is like, yeah, but I think it's because my donor dad was Jewish. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I think that a lot of times they do find an outlet in school, in, a, in these school activities, that that does tend to be a place where they uh, channel some of their energies. And um, it, it was not because there, there, was, there was absence of distress um, or challenge in their life. Um, but yes, I you know I'm I'm really interested to see more research done on that subject. It'd be interesting to know if they're if they're not engaging in well I'm I'm stereotyping of men and women, but maybe they're not engaging in quote unquote male activities like sports, so they're doing academics instead. Or... That's very possible because the, the the boys, especially in our group chat, um, that is the biggest thing they lament is not having somebody in their life who is throwing them around and wrestling and tackling them and pushing them, right? That's the one thing they talk about. There was nobody to really push me. Everything in my life was be safe, be careful, be nice. And nobody's saying, go higher, go bigger, go stronger. And so, yeah, I think that that is one possible way that um, these kids can find an outlet for their um, their interests. But I don't know. Like that's an area where this research is very, very young and it's very hard to find these kids at random and yeah. then to survey their actual um, their actual experiences rather than just, you know, what the parents think. I There's this one quote that, that Stacey said this, but, you know, in there was a recent study done in, in Italy in 2018 where they you know, surveyed 70 gay fathers, 120 lesbian mothers, and 195 heterosexual couples. Um, and it turned out that, amazingly, the gay fathers and lesbian mothers were much better parents than the, the, the married heterosexual couples. Um, but the the tool of assessment was just them, the parents, talking about whether or not they thought they were good parents. Right? <laughs> and that was it. And Stacy wrote, in Realville, that sentence would read, different sex parents are more forthcoming about their parental failings than same-sex parents. Yeah, I love that. In Realville, I thought that, I laughed out loud at that. I thought that was yeah. funny. So. But um, when it, when I put you on the spot to ask you about the the, the one story that, that was the most poignant, and it is difficult because there are so many of them. I think one of my, one of my most, the one that made a deep impression on me was the young man who talked about being raised by um, lesbian parent, lesbian mother lesbian parents and he and it was it was very sad i mean the fury of him he just said i didn't even know how to be i didn't know how to be a man i didn't mm -hmm. i wasn't around men and i didn't i he's he's i mean the stereotype the stereotype what he said was that i felt that i was sort of lesbian effeminate because i just didn't have any role models yeah 
And that, that's tragic and sad. Yeah. So we, um, you know, we talk about how there are similarities in all of these, um, these three categories. You know, the first one, divorce and abandonment. The second one, same-sex parenting. The third one, um, children created through sperm and egg donation and big fertility. And so they all share some commonalities. You know, we've already talked a little bit about how there's almost a reversal in the adult uh, the child-parent relationship, where in, uh, regularly we would expect the parents to be understanding, supportive, and accommodating. In these desire-based parental losses, it's often the children who need to be understanding, supportive, and accommodating of the parents. You know, in all of these situations, the child experiences parental loss, so that's similar. But then each of these three categories also have distinct struggles, right? So the distinct struggles for children create children of divorce is largely instability, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That, that after a divorce of a child's parents, you can almost bet that instability will be a feature of the child's life. Mm -hmm. Um, But the main thing that, so that's something that not necessarily children who are raised um, exclusively by same sex parents or um, children created through um, sperm donation raised by heterosexual parents, they may not face that instability. So what is the distinct struggle that children with same sex parents face? And largely it's mother hunger or father hunger. So we've talked a little bit, touched on this a bit, but really it is this overwhelming drive to be loved by someone of the the sex that's missing from your household. Mm. Um, and that need, that craving, um, and that there's several stories in there of children, you know, often with two mothers who find themselves drawn to, attaching to, and almost fantasizing about the men in their life because they are craving something to fill that hole of male love that they were made for. Um, and, you know, you, you see this in even children of single mothers, right? when a father is gone, the longing for a father doesn't go away. Um, now the child is struggling to fill that hole of legitimate, their legitimate need for male love somehow. Oftentimes that happens in really unhealthy ways. Sometimes it just ends up being, um, they're just deprived. And the fallout of that is um, it's harder to know how to relate to men. Maybe they have an unhealthy connection with men. Uh, but, you know, the, nature or God <laughs> ordained for a child to have one parent of each sex so that we can practice connecting to both halves of humanity from ev- in, during every stage of our development. So when that's gone, it does um, destabilize the child in terms of their development. It also makes it harder to know how to understand and connect to um, somebody of the sex that was missing in your your household structure. So um, those deficits are really clear when you read the stories of the kids um, in our chapter on same-sex parents. Well, also too, the children of divorce have similar similar things. And in your book, and I recognize this because some of the stories that I, in the book I have heard in my own life from people just around the town where I live. And one, one of them is that one little girl in the book or young re- recalls sitting at, on the stoop or, or watching Watch, I guess watching airplanes, wondering. I wonder if my daddy, if my daddy could be in that plane, or or the woman I knew in my town was that her daughter would sit and look out the window and say, maybe we could bring him home and he could be my daddy. It was yeah. so touching. Yeah, and we do. Um, we tell the story of um, Brandy Walton, who was raised by two women, and she said she, when she was a child, she never would have said anything about her longing for a father. She never would have spoken up against. She 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 loved her mother so much that she would never say anything against 
lesbians or gay parenting or anything like that. But she would go out in her yard and she would wave at every airplane going over her house, wondering, thinking, if my father's on that plane, maybe he'll see me. Um, And we tell several other stories of kids in the book who... um, just cling to whatever man is in their life and say, can I just call you daddy? I mean, this is before the world tells them you should have a dad, right? This is something that they just naturally want because this is what kids want. Somehow the kids know that this is something they are made for. Yeah. I remember reading an interview or heard an interview with Terry Brazelton, the famous pediatrician. And he said that he could just tell the children who didn't have a father in the house because they would sit on his lap and he was a male because I had heavy, big thighs and they were used to that. I thought that was very poignant. But yeah. ap- apropos of of the the subject of fathers, you make a powerful argument in the book, and it's very sad that that liberals don't connect the dots. I mean, there's a big push for the, they condemn mass incarceration, and obviously it's not good to have black men in prison at disproportionate rates. But they never go on to say because they're not out forming stable families, they're not able to have children because they're in prison. And if they had, if they were allowed to be, to form families and had had that in their home, there wouldn't, you wouldn't be these social problems, which is this, this endless cycle that you talk about that as Larry Elder says, I believe he had a tweet, a famous tweet about it's fathers, it's fathers, it's fathers. They need to have that. They're, everything you talk about that crime rates would be lower, school, school attendance would be better, grades would be higher. Uh, there would be public health would be better, but they just don't want to talk about the issue of fathers because they. I guess what I'm frustrated by is I as I as I from a liberal household and the whole thing is the feminist. Why is it sexist to talk about the importance of fathers as if it's somehow you're betraying your sexist credentials or your obligation? I mean, your your feminist credentials to be to talk about the importance of a father in our in our lives. Yeah, well, a feminism has. Uh gone through several evolutions, it seems. Um, And the place where they arrived at is um, to be equal, we must be the same, right? Mm -hmm. That to me feels like where they've landed. And that has led to all kinds of problems, uh, certainly of, you know, men taking over women's spaces. But when it comes to the family, right, what naturally follows is, well, if men and women are the same, we don't need men. Um, And the lives of children will refute that very, very quickly. Um, We do have a section in the first chapter uh, called Black Fathers Matter, you know, Mm. where we reveal the statistic that, you know, first of all, we spend a lot of time talking about how there's three staples of a child's social emotional diet, right? Three nutrients that you have to be feasting on. Children need a lot of different things in their life. But if you do not have these three staples, it's very difficult for a child to thrive. And those staples are mother's love, father's love, and stability. If a child is missing one of those three staples, they are going to be emotionally and socially malnourished. So right now in our country, only 17% of black kids will reach high school graduation nourished on all three of those staples. Only 17% are going to graduate high school living exclusively with their married mother and father. Most black kids are going to suffer some kind of parental trauma or instability or complete starvation of one of those aspects or more. And and then we scratch our heads and wonder, why aren't they successful in school? What's going on with the achievement gap? Why is it that Black kids are disproportionately involved in crime? Why is it that Black teen girls are getting pregnant sooner and aborting more of their children? And it's not because they are Black. It's because they are fatherless. This has nothing to do with race. Um, 
around the turn of the 19th century, or the, I'm sorry, the 20th century, the 1900s, um, black women were out marrying white women. I mean, they used mm. to have higher marital rates than white women. When it comes to black fathers, black fathers who are married to the mother of their children, they spend more time with their kids than white fathers do. So this has nothing to do with their capacity to marry and parent, but it has everything to do with the fact that government has disincentivized men committing to the women they're making babies with. Um, and this breakdown of the black family is largely driven by the welfare state, you know, and that's not my words. That's Thomas Sowell, you know, Thomas Sowell, who said the black family survived centuries of slavery, decades of Jim Crow, but they could not survive the liberal welfare state. Um, and there's no hope for black kids. I mean, sure, you'll find the kid who's able to overcome but if you really, really want to help black kids, then you need to give them access to the one institute. Right now, you've got every institution in the world begging for kids. You've got Ivy League schools. You've got, um, you know, major tech corporations that are favoring black candidates. Right. So institutionally, the world is wide open to them, except there's one institution that seems totally out of reach, and that's the institution of marriage. And if you can't give them the institution of marriage, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to succeed. Yeah, so often you don't see in popular culture very many depictions of, of successful Black marriages. And it's, it's kind of sad because <laughs> the irony was the one successful one was Bill Cosby. That was a big, mm. and, then, and then of course that went south. So that was sad. And, but um, uh, but uh, we're, we're nearing the end of the interview, Katie, and I'd like to talk to you about, about uh, how, how you came to the, and we talked a little about how you came to it, but can you talk about how, what it's like to be, a, you're, you're a stay-at-home, you're a stay-at-home mom slash full-time activist. So, I mean, how do you, are, would you say you're a full-time activist or how would you identify yourself? Or I'm, I shouldn't say identify because yeah. it's such a, yeah, it's such a left term. But. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, as we say in the book, there really is nothing special about me. Um, I should, I, and you should not have to be, um, starting global crusades to protect the fundamental rights of the most vulnerable among us. Mm. Um, we, the people who are charged with protecting our rights to make sure that government doesn't infringe on them and that they are protected from any other um, nefarious actors, they should be doing this. But unfortunately, nobody is, right? There is nobody championing the rights of children, not academia, not the media, not the politicians, um, certainly not the well-moneyed, well-organized, um, powerful organizations that seem set up against the rights of children, whether that is the fertility lobby or supposed human rights organizations that believe that adults have rights to children who are not biologically theirs. Mm. Um, and so there's nothing special about me. And um, it really is well, just I, somebody well, needs I, to do this. I, you know? I, I, I beg to differ, but <laughs> I, I, I think you're an amazing case of a, of a person that was galvanized and took a risk because you, you write in the book about, I didn't expect, I was, I was trying to just write anonymously in order to, to just make my point, but then you were doxxed yeah. and, the, and the members of your church were doxxed. And that was, but as it turned out, that was in, in to my, to my thinking for, for my purposes in terms of learning from you that I'm glad that person did that because you've taken a public stand. And after that, ironically, your public profile increased exponentially. You've got invited to speak abroad 
And for many organizations, you're an author now. So yeah. that person didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, <laughs> it was definitely a story of oh, what the enemy means for evil, God will use for good. Um, because that was it, you know. Um, and as an activist, um, I've learned to have a thicker skin and not worry mm-hmm. about as much of what people say. But that is not how um, the opposition works. They will hurt anybody you love to get Mm. you to shut up. And it's been a very powerful and effective tool, I believe, against sensible, ordinary, middle-of-the-road Americans, where they Mm. understand that you could lose your job. They'll come after your children. Um, You know, they will harm you online. They will, I mean, they will notify your employer. I mean, we know this, right? And Mm. that has been incredibly effective, uh, especially for people who, like me, are a little more um, on the peacekeeping side rather than the truth-telling side. You know, it took a lot of growth for me to be able to say, I'm, I need to just speak up and say this. Um, and so, yes, the, the, the blogger who unmasked me um, also doxed members of my church. And yeah. um, thankfully, we've got a church um, leadership that's got a lot of spine um, and said, well, looks like that's his problem now. <laughs> And um, mm. yeah, it is. So um, we now have a global nonprofit um, that is um, connected to people on, oh my gosh, how many continents? We don't have Antarctica. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we've got people from all around the world who are connected to us in some capacity um, because there's nothing else like this. There's nothing else no, like this. I think that I think that's a remarkable thing is that you say, well, there are plenty of organizations that are talking about pro-life on, on the topic of abortion and you're the, and and that that are about the traditional marriage, but yours is comprehensive, right? In a way that, that the others aren't. And also, as you say, global. And I was struck by how much of the 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 book is also an expose of how big fertility exploits women abroad. I mean, and it's interesting. It's not just Americans and Brits and Australians, but there was a famous Japanese man that was exploiting women in Thailand, right? So it's 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 wealth rather than race or or nationality that is exploiting people using these technologies. Yeah, the destabilization destabilizing of the family, um, the idea that marriage exists for adult fulfillment rather than the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known, the forces of big fertility, um, all of those are crossing borders. Um, And so the movement to put children first must also cross the borders. The other thing that I think is really helpful, why this organization and the book is so helpful, is so much of the time we view these issues as totally disconnected from one another, right? Oh, here's divorce. We need to look at that one way. Well, Mm. here's, you know, surrogacy. We need to look at that that a different way. Well, here's same-sex couples saying that they have a right to adopt. Well, that deserves a different response. Well, polygamy, open non-monogamy, well, that's something totally different, but it's not. Every conversation about marriage and family, it's, it's really just about one thing. Are you respecting or are you disregarding the rights of children? You don't need to go play whack-a-mole with every new thing that pops up, you know, in your country or in your state. It all comes back to children have a fundamental right to their mother and father. Will our laws, will our policies, and will our cultural expectations respect those rights or disregard those rights. So in one sense, this is a helpful template um, that you can use to lay over the top of whatever new policy or whatever new cultural trend is coming down the pipe for you. Um, And and in that sense, I think it's also pretty helpful um, for readers and followers too, that um, this is really just one conversation. Well, I I was fascinated too by, I learned so much about divorce and I regret now as I was growing up, I came from an intact biologic, you know, traditional family. And I just... 
did not understand I could, at the time what, what how difficult it was for my divorced classmates. I mean, the children of the children of divorced parents, the children of divorce. I just it was oblivious to me. I remember visiting a home of a divorced a girl, a woman, a single family, a single mom. And it was just such a contrast that it was a small apartment. They were clearly struggling. And I just didn't didn't grasp why, because she was struggling to provide to provide a life for the, her two daughters because they were divorced and how hard it was for the children. Yes. Um, you know, divorce has been around a long time. So in a sense, we kind of fall into the trap of believing that it's normal, um, mm-hmm. but it's not normal. And one of the interesting bits of feedback that I've had from several people that have read the book is they've said, thank you. I've never been able to articulate what I struggled with and why it was so hard, but because I was raised in a home of divorce and I read the chapter and then I took the book and I handed it to my husband and Mm. I said, please read chapter five and then let's talk. Because sometimes it's even hard for the children of divorce to articulate exactly what that cost them and the kind of lifelong struggle that it foisted upon them. Well, one thing I learned from the book that hadn't occurred to me too, was that in no fault divorce, you make the important point that it gives the, uh, the, the advantage to the, the person that wants the divorce rather than the person who wants to try to save the marriage. Yeah. And that put that disadvantage is the person who's saying, look, look, we have children. We need to stay together for their sake and let's try to make this work. No, no, I'm done. Right. And we make a distinction at the beginning where we talk about the difference between at fault and no fault divorce, right? It used to be that if a couple, if a spouse was found to be at fault of abuse, abandonment, adultery, that then the courts could side with the innocent spouse and reward them with um, custody and with the house and all of that. And the at fault model um, really held a much higher view of the vows and the commitment. The no fault divorce model favors and advantages the spouse that wants the marriage the least and oftentimes the spouse that has misbehaved the most. They hold the most power in the proceedings. So it's problematic on so many levels. Um, you know, we do make a distinction and say there are times where divorce even though it's painful for the child and damaging to the child, may be the best option, but that is not the bulk of divorces today. 70% of divorces take place um, not because of, the, you know, somebody is found to be at fault, but simply because the adults have decided that the marriage no longer makes them happy, so there should no longer be a marriage. Well, Katie, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I promise to keep it roughly to 90 minutes. I'm going to ask you one last question. I've six, uh, squeezed that in. What uh, the the traditional last question on the New Books Network is? What are you working? The New Books Network is what are you working on now? Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) Just keeping your organization flourishing as it is. Oh yes. So honestly, what I'm working on now is making sure that my four children are thriving Mm. in the midst of a world gone mad. Mm. Um, And so, kind of back to your earlier question, um, I think a lot of moms in particular are wearing a lot of hats right now. You know, so I've got a mom hat. I've got um, an activist hat. Um, My husband's the pastor of a church. So I've also got a shepherding hat that I'm wearing. And um, so I don't have any major writing projects. And thankfully, the bulk of this writing took place um, before the madness of pandemic and shutdown and forced homeschooling and all of that. Um, So what will I be working on when things turn back to normal? Um, Well, I am trying to convince Stacy to write another book 
um, either on her own or with me about raising strong kids, raising strong um, conservative kids in the middle of a psycho liberal world. Um, so <laughs> we'll see if something like that happens because I actually um, have a real passion for equipping kids um, to be experts in all of these controversial topics um, and getting to them before the culture gets to them. So mm. we'll see. Um, we'll see if that's something that happens. There's definitely a lot of children's rights work that needs to happen still. I'll be going to the Czech Republic in September um, mm. to talk to their um, some members of their parliament and, and a few discussions at churches and kind of out in public. Um, there's lots of collaboration that's happening. Um, the Colson Center um, has developed an amazing new platform that's kind of PragerU style videos called What Would You Say? And um, so we've collaborated with them to create several children's rights scripts. So if you want some of these concepts kind of boiled down into a tighter um, format with great animation, you can go to whatwouldyousay.org and type in Katie Faust and you can see all the videos I've collaborated with them on. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it's it's a really great resource. Um, and, and that's the Colson Center website? That is, they have their own website. It's called whatwouldyousay.org. Just what would for you the say videos. They're, all the videos are really great, but obviously the Family Structured Children's Rights videos are really incredible. Um, so yeah, and then just getting the word out. Um, you know, there's a lot of different interest from, uh, we, we get a lot of, because nobody's doing this, yeah. you know, we are getting so many requests from Poland and Trinidad and Tobago and Cuba and Singapore and South Korea to say, like, how do we get these ideas? How can we transmit these ideas into our own context? So, you know, we work with them to draft articles that they can translate. Um, we support them as they start their own children's rights organizations in their own countries. Um, you know, if a country, con Lithuania contacted us at the beginning of the year, seeing some major changes coming through um, their uh, legislature in terms of redefinition of the family. And we got, we were able to get way out in front of the ball and, and they really did align their policy in a way that honored children's rights, which was incredible because this little, like most countries, these small countries are swept away and overtaken by these massive overseas, um, organizations that are bursting with cash. And yeah. oftentimes they just get steamrolled. But if you can get these children's rights, child-centric arguments, especially the stories of kids right out in front and make the connection between these policies and child well-being, you can win. Yeah. My, my friend, um, Doug Mainwaring, who is a gay man, supports traditional marriage, really incredible guy. You know, He said, you'll never be on the wrong side of history when you're on the right side of natural law. And that's true, right? Mm. If you are standing firmly on natural law, natural rights, it is history that's going to have to correct to you, not the other way around. Yeah, I was just going to say that Robert P. George is one person to, who he's a leader in, nat in natural law. I mean, he's one of the great the giants of it. So that's appropriate that he's that he writes a forward to your book. And also, I just mentioned that apropos of, of a, a country that's leading in protecting children's rights right now is Hungary. And the European Union is pressuring them. They, they're saying we don't want a lot of gay rights propaganda of a certain type in our schools and, and the European union is really pressuring them. And they're so far, they're standing, standing firm on that. Yeah. So, anyway, I will, I, with that, I will just thank the writer and reformer and advocate advocate and children's advocate and activist and incredible dynamo that we've been talking today, Katie Faust about her book, them before us, why we need a global children's rights movement. And thank you listeners. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.